Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons. Thank you very much for turning out on a very sunny day. Can you all hear me? Yes. I'm feeling very loud up at the front here, but I guess that's probably a good thing. Uh, my name is Sam Alberti. I'm very privileged to be Director of Museums and Archives here at the Royal College of Surgeons. Um, my title, uh, apart from plucking it from thin air some months ago now, um, was uh, a little bit deliberately provocative and a tiny bit misleading, as you'll see. I'm delighted to see senior um, colleagues from the college present. I don't know whether um, my colleagues are horrified at the thought that I might be planning to lose the museum, or perhaps, given the stretch on our resources, rather delighted at the thought. But today's talk will be uh, not so much about how to lose a museum, but how items from museums, and sometimes whole museums, are transferred or destroyed or otherwise somehow dispersed or lost. Um, it's a talk in uh, response to the wonderful exhibition we opened last week on London's Lost Museums, which is up in the Quist Gallery um, in the Hunterian just next door, um, which has been enormous fun uh, to work on. Sarah Pearson, who led on that, unfortunately, is unwell today. Otherwise, she would have been delighted to show you around. But I'd urge you to go up there if you haven't already. Um, partly, it was great fun to work on that exhibition because my own interest um, is in uh, museum history. And largely in museum history, whether you know, the, the topic generally or whether you're looking at individual institutions, people talk, uh, tend to emphasize on, um, tend to emphasize foundations. They tend to emphasize the sort of genesis stories of particular institutions um, so that you get uh, a great many um, stories about uh, cabinets of curiosity in the 16th and 17th centuries. In particular, this is a, an early image, 1599, of the apothecary Ferrante Imperato. And there's lots of wonderful work done on cabinets of curiosity um, as they expanded and, and proliferated in early modern Europe. The next sort of sizable expansion in museum growth and museum founding uh, in the decades around 1800. So this, I don't know how well you can see that, um, is an image from Bullock's Museum, which we feature in the exhibition upstairs. And, oh, I was early even. Um, uh, Bullock's Museum was one of dozens of museums that were opened in the period sort of 1780 to 1820, um, arguably kind of in response to uh, the um, collecting activities of the brothers Hunter, um, who's one of whose um, co collections we see next door. Um, but there's a massive proliferation in anatomy and natural history museums in this period around 1800. Around a century later, these kind of usually private or privately run, you know, with public access and so on, but um, by a century later, most of these have been absorbed into much larger institutional museums. So in the medical museum area, um, we're seeing um, every hospital or university or medical school worth its salt has a very large teaching collection. Can anyone identify this one? No? 
No, it looks, but this is a good point. It's not the Hunterian. It looks very like the Hunterian because mostly they're kind of based on it. This is Bart's, um, as was, which was one of the largest of the hospital museums. They, um, the Gordon Museum is still with us, but all of the um, large, the major, the great teaching hospitals, capital G in London had them. Um, the, the provincial red brick universities had them. The old universities had them. Um, and the, um, uh, they're massive in this period. There aren't necessarily, as, there isn't necessarily an enormous um, boom in the foundation of new museums as there had been a century earlier. But it's this period, sort of, this is from 19, around 1900, 1910. The period uh, 1870, 80 to around 1930 is um, the, the age of museums, if you'd like to call it that. And I say that not only because it's my particular area of particular interest. It's the, the era of the, the period of the greatest quantitative growth in museum collections. So if we're talking about natural history and medical museums, as we are, um, this is coinciding with the massive expansion in taxonomy. This is coinciding with uh, large imperial expansion, bringing in a lot of things coming in. In medical museums, which also get things from the kind of breadth of the empire, medical museums, you're seeing uh, pathology in the UK being established as a profession, and they're bringing in dozens of specimens weekly to these museums, and they end up with these huge catalogues, tens of thousands of specimens. So it's that sort of stepwise growth. The first museums in the 1600s, this expansion of smaller collections around 1800, and our own Hunterian um, is kind of opened as a museum in that period. And this massive expansion in the size of the collections around about 1900. You add to that, the development of the 20th century of the heritage industry. In the 1970s, there's a period at which the saying goes, there was a new museum opening every fortnight. And you begin to wonder with all these massive expansion over four centuries, how come we're not kind of drowning in museum objects? How come there isn't a you know, massive museum of you know, savory or unsavory nature at every step? And the reason is, of course, I don't need to tell you that museums aren't kind of static mausolea. They don't just expand and then grow and then stop. They're sort of dynamic organisms. The museum sector as a whole is quite, if you look at the long durée, is a relatively dynamic, mobile kind of system where specimens are coming in, but they're also going out. They're going, being exchanged between whole museums, they're closing down, their collections being transferred elsewhere. And so this is what I've, you know, snuck in under my deliberately provocative title, and this is, you know, as deliberately provocative as it gets in museology, really, um, is to reflect on how things move between museums, not just how museums are founded, and we'll have a lot of that in uh, the year, year after next in 2013 when we celebrate the bicentenary of us being on this site, the Hunterian being on this site. Today I'm trying, thinking about how specimens, how whole collections move between museums or move out of museums or are taken from museums. So today's structure, in as much as I have a structure, is a sort of spectrum from benign reasons for items to leave a museum to not so benign. So we'll start with gifts, we'll talk about sales, 
then we'll talk about accidents, and then we'll talk about not-so-accidental destruction. And where possible, I'll draw us, a, you know, connect us to the um, uh, exhibition we have running, um, but I'll also draw from um, examples across the last couple hundred years of natural history, and especially medical museums. And then I hope at the end to have some time for questions. Given that that's what I'm talking about, if you'd like to leave now, you're very welcome. <laughs> we'll take a stroll, but if you're all going to wait. So, the first of the sort of modes of movement of museums and specimens I'd like to talk about, the nicest way to lose a museum uh, is to give it away. And museums... The, you know, the nice, the people, the way people prefer to give museums away is to another museum. And so prestigious museums tend to gather their specimens and items from generous donors or from collectors or from smaller museums. So you'll see uh, along the shelves of natural history and medical collections um, details of how the items, actually often more prominent than the case histories or the patient, details of how the items came to be given to that collection. Um, this isn't always welcomed by the recipient. One 19th century curator sneered, and I quote, not from our museum, I might add, uh, museum shelves have many a curious tale to tell of how and why they acquired their items. This specimen, because Mr. So-and-so cut it off. This, because Mr. A or Mr. B gave it. This, because, though a very ordinary thing, it came from a very extraordinary man. The act of giving to another museum, and you get a lot of kind of provincial uh, practitioners giving, you know, whether in natural history or medicine or science, giving their items to a larger museum because they get a kind of reflected glory. They know that they'll be mentioned in the catalogues. Um, they know that their name will be, or they hope that their name will then be associated with that specimen. Sometimes you get gifts of entire collections as in the example I'll detail here. This is um, John Barclay sitting on an elephant, um, or a dead elephant. Um, he's a, a surgeon anatomist in Edinburgh. And when, so tracing everything back to the Royal College of Surgeons of England, as we like to do, the museum opens here around about 1800. The Edinburgh College immediately decides that its museum is too small and invites gifts to expand its museum. And one of the um, fellows, who's another surgeon on Surgeon's um, Square at Edinburgh, um, who responds to this is John Barclay. And he offers the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh um, his entire collection of natural history um, and comparative anatomy on condition, on condition that they build a hall to house it. So it's not really the sort of gift you, you want. But that's how come they have that kind of um, swanky hall um, up there in Edinburgh, um, because he, he insisted. Not only that, he also insisted in this, I mean, it was a generous gift, it's a very important collection, you know, big elephant, apart from anything. Um, he also insisted that they take to look after it his assistant, um, and the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh agree to that. Um, the assistant, a young Robert Knox, um, turns out to be a bit of trouble. Um, Although he's never officially indicted in the trial of Burke and Hare, um, he has bad relations with the college authorities anyway, and he resigns in 1831. Um, and then, I believe, comes to London, doesn't he, Knox? 
So um, the uh, uh, gifts don't always um, have good consequences. Many gifts, of course, are posthumous. And you see this from eponymous museums across the world. Much as we're loath to admit that there's another Royal College of Surgeons, uh, there is another Hunterian Museum, the other Hunterian, as we call it, um, up in Glasgow. This is its first building. Um, that's a result of the um, bequest of William Hunter, the elder brother, um, to his alma mater, um, Glasgow University. He'd offered it to the government, the Westminster government, um, to build a sort of you know, national public institution, but they refuse, and in high dudgeon, um, he bequeaths it instead to the University of Glasgow. Um, his collection, which goes up in, in 1807, is valued at 65,000 pounds, because remember, William Hunter's collection is even more um, diverse than John Hunter's and has these wonderful coins and artwork and so on. And that gets housed in, um, this is the original uh, William Hunterian, uh, housed in this uh, William Stark-built premises, um, thanks to a further bequest of 8,000. Now, the Hunterian here, the John Hunterian, has a slightly more complex provenance after John Hunter's death, and it's only after considerable lobbying and a lot of money changing hands that the money, that the collection ends up coming here. And this, thinking about this money changing hands, the second of the sort of modes of losing a museum that I'd like to talk about is sale. Because if you're not inclined to give away your museum, but you're a bit strapped for cash, a lot of people turn to selling them. One of the reasons why anatomists and collectors sometimes did this during their life is they were terrified that their executors, they were terrified of the breakup of their collection after they die. A lot of these um, posthumous gifts have, have uh, uh, specified that everything must remain together or even worse from the curatorial point of view, it must always be on display and all these sort of things. So collectors dread the thought of their collection being broken up. John Barclay of Elephant fame uh, was desperate, and I quote, to prevent his collection of anatomical preparations from being scattered. George Langstaff, who was another one of these um, Georgian anatomists that we talk about in the exhibition, um, had long entertained, and I quote, had long entertained the hope that my, that is his collection, might be preserved entire, but he was in vain, because it was, he was induced to part with certain portions and to auction the remainder. The sale, and I quote, was concluded most lamentably for nearly 2,000 preparations, which he'd valued at two and a half grand, 2,500 pounds. He didn't realize 250 pounds. He got one-tenth of what he'd hoped for. The bottles would have sold more if they'd had neither spirit nor preparations in them. And you get these accounts of the, you know, people buying museums and just dumping out the specimens and keeping the valuable glassware, which was, of course, quite an um, expensive commodity at this time. The Times lamented of another collection that was broken up. We could not help regretting once or twice that so noble a collection would be scattered by the breath of the auctioneer. And if I may focus on one particular auction, um, that of the collection of Joshua Brooks, that we feature in the, um, in the temporary exhibitions at the back of the hall here and upstairs. Joshua Brooks um, was uh, uh, an anatomist and a teacher and a naturalist. He painstakingly built up a massive collection in his four-story Blenheim Street School of Anatomy, which is illustrated at the back. 
And he also has a menagerie out the back, um, out the back of the house. It, he has in his museum 6,000 anatomical, comparative, and morbid specimens, and it took him 30 years and 30,000 pounds to compile. The Lancet considered it second only to that of John Hunter. And you get a lot of this. The, our collection is second only to that of John Hunter. There are about 17 collections in second place. Mind you, it's clear who's in the first place, of course. Joshua Brooks' dissecting room, according to the, uh, his pupil John Flint South, had the scent of a ham shop. And Brooks himself was, I quote, the dirtiest professional person I've ever met. And this thing about smell and food and stuff, I won't, it's around about lunchtime, I won't go into it, but there's a very interesting history of medical museums around the smell and the taste and the, the comparisons with meat are quite, quite frequent and nonetheless pretty revolting. Brooks, dirty and smelly notwithstanding, was a renowned pedagogue and he taught some 5,000 students over his 40-year career. When he retires in 1826, partly put out of business by the regulatory activities of um, some important institutions, who shall remain nameless, partly put out of business by this, he offers his museum to sell to the new University of London, this godless Gower Street that became University College, but they, they didn't want it. And so he was forced to sell it in separate lots at auction. Now, the first part of the collection is put up for auction by George Robins in 1828. And for six days, the sale lasts for 24 days. Remember, there are, there are uh, 6,000 specimens. The sale lasts for over three weeks. For six days before the sale, um, the museum is thrown open for anyone to view the exhibition if they paid for the two and six catalogue. And the sale itself becomes a sort of exhibition. It's an excuse for people who wouldn't normally have been able to to come in and have a look around. These sales and the catalogues that go with them become sort of exhibitions in and of themselves. 50 to 100 lots were sold a day, and they cleared out the museum room by room, including the books, including the furniture. As an aside, by comparison, and the original, rather stunning original of this can be seen on a table at the back there, but I've been told by my archival colleagues um, it's too big for the cases, but if you touch it, they'll chop your hands off, which apparently is, is um, good customer care that we offer at the Royal College. Yeah. But there's, the original is, is to view at the back there. It's very stunning. This is John Heverside's collection at a similar time. This is an 1814 picture. One of the five finest private collections of morbid anatomy in the kingdom. Um, this raised... 12,000 pounds in 2,500, 2,644 lots it took to sell off this particular. But if we go back to Brooks, the rest of Brooks' collection went under uh, Wheatley and Adlard's hammer in 1830. I quote, tickets with catalogues priced three shillings may be had in the principal towns of England, at Edinburgh, Glasgow, Dublin, and Paris. They pitched the sale at a wide audience, advertising an immense quantity of detached human bones, clean and sane, that is, healthy, allotted in small parcels for the convenience of professional gentlemen, artists, sculptors, students, etc. Likewise, many cases of instruments. We don't have a picture of the auction, but this is um, from a 19th century series demonstrating various social phenomena, and it's quite a nice uh, illustration of what 19th century auctions were like, of art in this case. But of Brooks' auction, the Times grumbles, the rooms were very greatly crowded, 
Notwithstanding the unfavorable state of the weather, but unfortunately the model room, that is, you know, wax models, anatomical teaching models, the model room, which formed the great attraction, um, was so small as not to contain more than a dozen persons at a time. Uh, we know that trick, the Sony use it all the time. By the time the sale opened, the crowd that had assembled was beyond even our sanguine expectation. The sale was commenced with much spirit. The first lot bought by the College of Surgeons, hurrah, who are likely to be large purchases, and we were, as you can see at the back. There are agents from Berlin, Amsterdam, Vienna, Paris, Glasgow, etc. Representatives were there from Oxford, from the Zoological Society. William Buckland was there, the geologist. Robert Grant, the anatomist from this new University of London. And William Clift for the London Hunterian. The Reverend William Clark, Professor of Anatomy in Cambridge, spent £150, and Thomas Hodgkin of lymphoma fame, who was at the time curator at the what is now the Gordon Museum at Guy's, bought 44 specimens, we think. All this time, Paul Brooks is sat there, and the rather the, the surgeon geologist Gideon Mantell popped in and recorded in his diary. Took Stutchbury, that is his friend Samuel Stutchbury in The Naturist, took Stutchbury with me to Brooks Museum to select a few lots to purchase for the sale, said Mantell. And clearly the breakup of the museum was devastating to Brooks, who you can't see very well there, but there's a nice picture upstairs. Mantell wrote, Brooks was there. If ever very clever, his light has gone out. A great bore. Shall I come to this? No, I shall blow out before I'm put in a save-all. At least I hope so. The very act of auctioning off the collection had clearly broken Brooks' spirit, and he's there, a great bore. But there are even worse fates than breaking up a collection, and the, part of the problem here is, of course, that the collector becomes so associated, so embedded in the collection, and this can happen to curators too, that you know, breaking up the collection is an act of, of breaking up the person. Their identity is so wrapped up, and that's, I think, why... Brooks was so upset by it. But there are worse fates. Fire being one of them, and one that we are experienced of here. Not recently, I might add. The Edinburgh anatomist Alexander Monroe, Tertius, cautioned, a museum is composed of very combustible materials. We use a great deal of spirit of wine, wax, and oil of turpentine. And if a person were not always at hand, any trifling spark might lead to the destruction of the whole building. Joseph Town at Guy's, who's a wax modeler, and we've got some wonderful um, examples of his, of his wax models of anatomical dissections, had finished his, it was evidently his final model. He'd been working at Guy's for 50 years over the 19th century, and he finished his final model. And then sad to relate, this work was just completed, was destroyed by the ignition of some spirit which flowed out of an upset spirit bottle and burnt up the specimen. Fortunately for him, it didn't go over the entire um, collection. And there's an interesting contrast between the dissecting room, which is often right next door to the museum. The dissecting room is where the pots often come from. Dissecting room, uh, students and uh, staff are actively encouraged to smoke to cover the smell, whereas it's less encouraged to smoke in the museum next door with all the bottles and preparations. But the worst case of a fire that I know of um, uh, in the uh, uh, natural history and museum sector, or any sector, I mean, we think of the Momart fire recently, but I think probably even worse than that was the fire experienced here on this site in 1941. This is room five 
of the Hunterian collection as it had grown to in the, uh, the 19th century. And if I may take from an eyewitness account by George Gray Turner, who was a member of council at the time and a fellow Tynemouth lad, he wrote in his Hunterian narration um, a couple of years later, he described what happened um, here in 1941. They'd wisely taken several of the pictures and other treasures of the college were evacuated to safe quarters some 200 miles from London. And they'd investigated what to do with the museum collections, decided perhaps that this was unwise for it to travel, and so uh, used the passages in the sub-basement, the, you know, totally underneath basement, below the basement, and thought that would be a good place to keep the most valuable of the specimens. In 1940, October 1940 to around April 1941, there's some damage as there was in this area and some kind of glass shattering and windows and things, but nothing too bad, and they were just about keeping on, keeping on top of it. These were kind of explosions from elsewhere in the vicinity. But then, on the night of May the 10th, 1941, a heavy high-exclosive bomb struck room five with terrible effect. The sub-adjacent war room and storerooms were utterly demolished, and room four and the instrument and invertebrate rooms were shattered. Incendiary bombs ignited room three, here, before, and fire raged with terrible ferocity, causing great damage to the historical and mummy room and the laboratories on the fourth floor in the main college block. And I continue to quote, but the most heart disheartening part of the disaster was caused by the end of a metal girder from one of the high roofs, which fell and drove a hole through the roof of the sub-basement which was already exposed by the destruction of the superstructure and the result of this high explosive bomb. The flames then rushed into the sub-basement, the passageways acted as a flue, and did untold damage to the precious stored material. That's where they'd put the most precious material, which then became exposed and sucked all the fire into it. Large parts of our treasures, like the war collection, were completely gone. There was absolutely nothing left to show. They were completely vaporized. Now, some survived, I mean, a great many survived, all told, thankfully. But this, if you can see it, is part of the glass from that was rescued from room three. This is room three, which wasn't the worst affected before and after. And this here, which I'll leave up there, is part of what remained of some of the pots. This is a pot that has been um, uh, melted and kind of refrozen, a shard of glass there, which was discovered from the ruins in 1941. And there's more examples of, of, of this upstairs. But I'll leave this here if anyone wants to have a quick look. But remember this, that's one of the lucky pots. Others we just have no trace of whatsoever. And just to finish on that, Turner wrote, never again am I likely to see anything so grievous. There was not only the terrible destruction caused by the bombing and the fire, but the continuous heavy rain which then succeeded the disaster and added much to the misery and desolation. So this is one rather extreme way to lose a museum. We lost around two-thirds of the um, items um, in that one evening. Uh, it had grown to around 65,000 specimens up to that point. But then thanks to 
the growth, the acquisition of the Odontological Museum and so on afterwards, we're now back up to about 75,000. So we're now larger than we were before, although we're not all in display like this. Um, so I don't quite know how we would have coped had we kept all those collections. But that's one particularly extreme way to lose a museum. Other ways, not quite so quantitatively significant, but interesting nonetheless, um, there's all sorts of accidents. You may remember that the, in 2006 it was, the uh, Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, poor gentleman tripped over his shoelace down the stairs and knocked over a King, vase, a, a, a King Dynasty vase. Um, they then arrested him, which seemed a bit mean, um, but released without the trouble. It took them six months to put back together. That's not involved leaving a vase out, really. Um, other examples of visitor interaction. So this is to give an example of the different uh, ways to lose a museum through one's visitors. Um, on the left, uh, it, uh, continuing in the great tradition of iconoclasm, this was Neil Simmons' response to Margaret Thatcher's uh, statue at the Guildhall Library, which, um, sorry, Paul Kelleher's response to Neil Simmons' statue of Margaret Thatcher, which he decapitated in 2002. In the middle is Tracy Emmons' bed, uh, as seen during the response of two um, performance artists, Yun Kai and Jian Jun Xi, um, who responded to Tracy Emmons' bed by jumping up and down on it. Um, I don't think it was actually damaged too badly that I know of. Uh, I won't show a picture of the same two artists responding to Marcel Duchamp's fountain <laughs> in the year 2000. And there is, of course, theft, not something that uh, one has to deal with very often, I'm pleased to say. My favorite example in working in the history of museums of this was at my former institution, the Manchester Museum. They, after great debate, decided to re-display their numismatic collections, the coins and medals, um, and found that they'd been broken into one night after they'd installed, this was after the, the new decimal coins had come out. And um, two scamps, as they were described, had broken into the numismatics left, all the Hellenic and Roman coins and stolen their bus fare. <laughs> but we know of many examples, of course, in art and so on about the um, theft. If there's accidental, if there's mischievous, if there's financially driven, visitors are generally meant to respond in a rather more genteel way. This is a nice image of the uh, Anterian in 1854. This is how their curators imagined and would have liked, thanks Haley, would have liked their uh, uh, visitors to behave. This wasn't the universal response to anatomy collections and medical collections. Because anatomists, as well you know, especially in the early 19th century, get a bit of a bad press because of the association um, with uh, the resurrectionists, the grave robbers, I mean, not least, you know, let alone Burke and Hare and actually uh, murdering activities. And so, uh, although for medical collections, most of the specimens, most of the human remains are coming not from resurrectionists, but from patients in hospitals, and there are consent and ethical issues there as well, but a very tiny fraction of these things are actually coming from grave robbing activities. Nonetheless, they're part of anatomy schools, and they're part of a process, and they're part of institutions which are associated with this activity, and they're often caught in the crossfire. A proposal in 1866 
to incorporate Glasgow University's anatomy facilities into the proposed Hunterian Museum, the other Hunterian, was ruled out after a riot in which the soldiers had to be called out. Uh, Joseph Jordan was a Manchester anatomist, had sent his um, uh, cargo of preserved cadavers um, to Scotland, he was supplying them, uh, when the stench from one of the barrels aroused suspicion. And when the contents of the barrels were relieved, a crowd besieged his anatomy school's breaking windows. The anatomy school in Sheffield was demolished entirely by one angry crowd, and in Cambridge, attempts to commandeer a pauper's body under the auspices of the Anatomy Act, legitimately, legally, so incensed a public meeting that the mob stormed the anatomical school. They wanted to liberate the body, which wasn't there, so instead they turned on the waxworks, they turned on the um, intricate anatomical models, which ironically, one of the great selling points of which is if you don't have to use real bodies. Nevertheless, those Florentine waxes were destroyed by that particular mob. So looking through all the different ways one can lose, we've had proactive, we've had giving away, we've had selling, we've had fire, theft, angry mobs. It's not always permanent, however. Um, there are Lots of accounts of kind of valuable items and collections lost and found. I'm sure we can all give them. Um, Hans Sloan is detailed in the exhibition upstairs. Um, had items from his extensive collection, not only founded the British Museum, but were um, found their way into collections across the country. And uh, curator at Tring, one of the curator of eggs, oology at Tring, is undertaking a, a considered campaign to find the remaining um, Sloan's eggs. Evidently, there are seven left in existence, we think, and he's found four of them, including, you know, under a table in the store of Nottingham Museum, that sort of thing. My own experience of lost and found, this was a, um, would, would be a relatively unremarkable Galapagos finch if it wasn't associated uh, with a certain Charles Darwin who collected it in September 1835. He sent it back. It was described by the ornithologist John Gould at the Zoological Society. Then goes to what is now the Natural History Museum and is transferred with a bunch of other specimens. It's quite a good example of how natural anatomical specimens circulate around um, different collectors, scientists, and institutions. It's transferred to the Manchester Museum in 1895, where it's thought lost until, um, well, we used the rather quaint phrase, its provenance was re-established in 2003, by which I mean my friend Henry found it at the back of a drawer, <laughs> realized, recognized the hand, realized who it was. So there's quite a lot of kind of lost and found stories. Not here, of course, because we have such immaculate collection management policies that nothing can possibly be lost. Behind these horror stories, um, enough to turn a curator's blood cold, um, I want to try to sneak in a serious message about contemporary collection development, because that's what you're all waiting for. As Thomas Messer, the director of the Guggenheim at the time, said, a museum, no more than any individual, cannot consistently ingest without occasionally excreting. Museums, I'm trying to persuade you, aren't static entities. We've seen how they grow and grow. They don't just remain at this size. They're not static mausolea. 
but they're sort of dynamic systems which by accident or on purpose, by necessity, have to grow and shrink. And the problem is, with contemporary safety measures and, and so on, and contemporary uh, uh, excellent practices, we tend not to be losing as much as once we did. And the problem then is that, although equally we're not, museums in, this, in the UK aren't expanding their collections as they much as they did, sorry, I'll read this out in a moment, it's that the numbers aren't terribly important. The museums aren't expanding as much as they did. They are still expanding, they are still acquiring. So this is the results of a study that my former colleague Nick Merriman undertook as part of a CLAW fellowship. And he looked at um, seven institutions, although only four of them are shown in the chart, about how they, their proportions of acquisitions over disposals in a 14-year period. So you'll see, uh, you can have a look later, but the, you'll see that the, typically they will acquire several tens of thousands of specimens. The Transport Museum acquires 170,000. Ipswich Museum, rather smaller, only 745. Glasgow Museum's 40,000, 7,000 for the Horniman and so on. Manchester Museum, 90,000. They acquire that many specimens, and of course, items. They might be tiny fragments, they might be tiny things, they might be huge things. Quantitative measurements aren't terribly um, uh, precise. But the point is that in the time that the London's Transport, Muse the London's Transport Museum acquired 170,000 specimens, they disposed, and dispose is a catch-all term that I'll come back to, it doesn't necessarily mean destroy, they disposed of 70. Even Ipswich Museum, which has this humble 745, only deaccessions one item in this period. And so the reason you can only see the blue acquisition bar, and probably from the back you can't see at all the disposal bar, is that the ratio of acquiring to disposing is vast. And this is the what you've got um, on the bottom here. You know, Ipswich Museum's ratio is, of course, 745 to 1. This is the period, the National Maritime Museum is interesting because in this period they acquire 2,000 and they dispose of 1,000. This was as a result of one of the most high profile deaccessioning exercises um, in, in the UK in, in recent times. And this was very high profile, enormous amount of work went into it and there was a lot of kerfuffle about it. But they looked through their stores, they decided that there was the whole collections they didn't need and they disposed of. <coughs> That was very high profile, took an enormous amount of work. And even then, they're still acquiring faster than disposing. Albeit this, you know, 1,200 specimens they acquired, there were several battleships in there, that sort of thing. So it's quite an effective way of doing it. But the point is that we need to, in contemporary collections, we need to think very hard about how we collect. And we also need to think very hard about how we deaccession. Now, that might... I would hope that that wouldn't be through theft or fire or angry mobs, although we have had a few demonstrations around, um, usually they're about student fees and things, but it still does make me a little bit nervous. Um, we would hope that it wouldn't be through those methods, but through ways of uh, returning items that haven't had their title transferred to us, uh, removing collections that don't quite fit with our strategic purposes to other collections that are more suitable, other public repositories. Um, 
looking through very carefully, as we are at them in the archives, for example, looking through very carefully to make sure we don't have any duplicates and using, using our space as carefully as we possibly can. Um, this is of particular interest across the museum sector at the moment. There's a large project going at UCL um, called Collections Demography, and they're thinking very much about this. So this is coming from a sort of conservation science perspective, but they're thinking very much about this as, as collections, as populations that can grow and shrink. Because the problem is, with natural history collections, uh, a tiny, tiny fraction of that which we hold is on display. Now, we have roughly 7 to 10% of our museum material on display, but that's a relatively dense display, and that's a relatively large proportion. 7 to 10% is a large proportion for a natural history or a science museum. Usually, that would some would be less than 3% and often less than 1%. The Natural History Museum, large natural history museums, this is the um, um, American Museum of Natural, no, the National Museum of Natural History at the Smithsonian, Washington, D.C. Just, it's my favorite picture, demonstrating, A, that they've got very nice stores. Ours are nice too, of course. Um, but just the sheer volume of material, the sheer um, challenge that faces contemporary curators. So carefully, properly, strategically, one needs to think not only about how to get rid of things, but how to acquire things. That's why we're very careful. Every time someone kindly offers to give us something, we need to assess it to make sure that it fits in. We need to make sure that these things are used. It's all very well having 75,000 wonderful things here, but we want to make sure that they're all, in so much as their physical integrity allows, don't touch it, they're used. They're for engagement, they're for research, for learning and teaching. And I would hope that as we very carefully and very slowly and very considerately consider the items that come in and some of the items that we might transfer outwards, I would hope that none of them would be burnt or mobbed or disposed of in those sorts of ways. So thank you very much indeed for coming today. I'll be happy to answer some questions uh, after or during which I would encourage you to have a look at the temporary displays that are laid out the back relating especially to Brooks and to Heaverside that I'd spoken about. I'd encourage you to go upstairs if you haven't already and see the uh, Lost Museum's exhibition up at the Hunterian. The next talk in this lunchtime lecture series um, is on Victorian medicine's lost property and Elizabeth Huron from Oxford Brookes University will be talking to us about some of the things I alluded to there around um, uh, the acquisition of material for medical museums, or we'll put it that way. Sooner than that, in the evening, as an evening talk, John J. Johnston on the 23rd of March will talk about um, ancient Egyptians, uh, unrolling of ancient Egyptian mummies and so on. Um, and all of this information can be found in our wonderful events guide available from Haley Kruger, my colleague who kindly, and, and over here as well, uh, my colleague who very kindly organised this event today. Thank you very much indeed for coming. So anyone have any questions? I'd be happy to answer. Lower quadrant here, yes. Mm. Are they all the same species or different? Um, I'm not an ornithologist, um, 
which is the usual way of starting a question, but my suspicion would be, my experience of natural history collections is, would be that they will all be of the same species. Let's say, for argument's sake, this drawer will have, is anyone an ornithologist? If not, let's call them green warblers. So they'll all be green warblers. One of the key differences between collecting around 1800 is then that's the people going out and collecting one of each species, or a male and a female. The thing about the collecting, this expansion, this quantitative expansion of collecting around 1900 is that they then wanted, with ideas about um, evolution by natural selection and slight variation with ideas about plant and animal ecology, to do those sorts of studies, you need to have not only one of every species, but many, many specimens of the same species to compare them and contrast. And so that's why you start getting these massive, and the, you know, the Smithsonian is a good example of this, is collection based on huge survey exhibitions around about 1900 to 1930. And they just brought back you know, material by the, by the crate load. These are, this is acquisition measured by the ton rather than by the item. So yes, they're likely to be, have many of the same species well, there. Well, that kind of answers another question I had, which was, what is the point of having so many of the same? They're, I mean, they're, one, one could talk a great deal about the point of having them, but mostly it's because these become active, um, not only kind of active research collections, but they become libraries for the specimen, because um, not only that, you know, in these cases, many of these birds may not because of these collecting practices, I might add, but if the birds become extinct or you want to undertake studies without having to go and shoot a bunch of green warblers yourselves, they're there. They're very incredibly useful. Um, and the other, I mean, the other, it's similar for us, you know, we have a few extinct species as evidenced in our exhibition, extinct on the ground floor of the anterior next door, but we have conditions, medical conditions in our human preparations that are thankfully very, very uncommon or even not seen at all now, but they're there as a reference library if these come back or as we see them now, a lot of conditions returning in the developing world. It's useful to have these there as a, as a research basis, not simply keeping them for keeping them sake, but keeping them for, for future researchers. Yes, we. Um, I mean, this is. I put this. This is, remember, this isn't. This isn't the sale I'm talking about. It's just my favourite picture of a sale. But Wheatley and Adlard, who undertake that um, 1830 sale of Brooks collection, they start in the book trade, and it's not terribly lucrative. So they expand into wine, and from wine into human remains. I mean, they. You know, it's 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 very much part of the same. Um, uh, sort of ecosystem of, of exhibitions and displays. Books are sold at the same time. Remember, they're selling, you know, all of these collections have not only human remains, but natural history and, um, and uh, a lot of bibliographic collections and so on. There are, you know, a large number of businesses that make their, uh, make their living through natural, comparative anatomy, natural history um, collections and so on, which will involve human anatomy as well, not quite to the same extent. But there's, yeah, there's a whole sort of sub-industry 
devoted to, to this thing. They, and and, and um, you know, we know about this from studies of the 18th century where they're, they're, um, they're going back and forth. It's similar and probably more institutionalized on a larger scale in the 19th century. So yes. Oh yes, yes, <laughs> yes. No. I mean, natural decay is something we're faced with on a kind of day-to-day -day basis. I hope not to the extent that, that once we were, but that's, I mean, it's, you know, these are, well, the natural history, these are organic items, aren't they? And they're going to, you know, if they require um, work in all ways to, to keep them up, keep, and it, you know, in any sort of museum context, you'll have uh, sort of grades of collection and too often, the bottom grade of that is the education or handling collection, where the things that are kind of vaguely representative are put out so that the you know for, they risk this this you know the worst possible fate for an item is to actually be given out to the visitors. They risk this sort of thing. But of course, I mean the the worst risk to a specimen isn't the visitor. It's actually the you know isn't the visitor. It isn't even the staff who are quite dangerous just because we're wandering around them. It's Time, it's entropy. These are, you know, if we look at this entropic principle, every one of these specimens is trying to decay. You know, it's the, this is the, the the weight of the task facing uh, natural history curators. Yeah, but good point. Thank you. I can comment. Um, whether or not you'd like me to comment in full is another matter. Uh, now, of course, um, we do still collect very slowly and very carefully. We do still collect um, human material for our teaching collection for the, to train surgeons. And we still have, we still acquire where we're able to um, fully consented remains um, under the auspices of the Human Tissue Authority, we're a licensed premises. And we need to do that to make sure that our, because, you know, not only new things come up, new ways of teaching come up, and older specimens slowly decay. So we need to keep things coming up, and where we can, we do so. So, for example, we uh, have taken in recently new plastinated specimens, which is, gives a very different sort of teaching experience. So it's always been done very carefully. This is now done especially carefully. But it does mean that the um, historic remains and the historic collections become especially important because we're acquiring so very slowly in that particular area. Uh, sorry, there, and then go. Is 
Museums generally, or us in particular. We, we have the very generous uh, support of the Royal College of Surgeons. Um, the museum sector as a whole is facing, A, all the difficulties faced by the public sector generally, and B, the added difficulty of, um, uh, of having these massive collections and uh, kind of draining expertise and so on. So the museum sector at the minute is uh, facing particular challenges. Um, as it has been, there's been, you know, the, the, the noughties generally, the new labor had quite a, it was an interesting approach to culture, but it at least was investing um, in culture through things like the Renaissance and the regions and his dedication to free access to the nationals, which we may take for granted now, but that may not be with us very much longer. But it's a very, very difficult time to be in the museum sector generally. We're relatively fortunate in that the Royal College sees the value of these collections as a, um, to promote the past, present, future of surgery, to train future surgeons and so on. But if I wouldn't want to be at the moment in a um, local authority, small local authority museum, that would be a very difficult place to be. The politics of repatriation is something that we deal with, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, we have uh, the Royal College of Surgeons uh, returned all its Tasmanian and Australian material in 2002 3, for example, and we consider very carefully any legitimate repatriation request that we get. What's interesting for the sector as a whole is there's a lot of interest in. Um, human remains from the former settler colonies um, around in the 1990s and early noughties. Uh, the shift now, which is interesting, is looking at what to do with what are referred to as indigenous British remains. And so we haven't had any approaches that I know of from pagan communities, but I know that pagan organizations are approaching a lot of archeological museums. And the debates there are very interesting because um, the arguments go that you know, if, if a museum has been returning to uh, First Nation Canadians, for example, why shouldn't they return to um, the Salisbury Druid order? And you know, there's a lot of debate back and forth about that. But it's a very interesting. And watching the shift um, from you know, the geographic and sort of cultural shifts, and it's quite difficult for the museum sector to kind of keep up. They'll you know, think long and hard and publish very careful, very worthy recommendations, only to find that the repatriation requests are coming from somewhere entirely different. But we have a very carefully uh, formulated uh, acquisition disposal policy that we turn to when we have legitimate requests, yeah. Museum, I'd like to really thank Sam for his talk, um, not only his inaugural talk as part of the series of Lost London Lectures, but also, frankly, his inaugural talk for us as, as oh, yeah. our director. So thank you very much, Sam. Thank you for coming. Um, as ever, I, will be, I do have a pile of little evaluation forms over by where I've left some brochures as well. If you could collect them, complete them, and fill in any details you may feel appropriate, and hand them back um, at our museum desk, we'd be much obliged. Thank you.
to myself. Yes, uh, uh, I'm just uh, uh, take... Oh, you put it there. Yeah. Uh,